there's no backstop fund now. So if we have a deficit, there's no funds there to fill it. Alaska lawmakers grapple with a problem with the state's piggy bank. From Alaska Public Media, this is Statewide News on Alaska News Nightly for Wednesday, September 8th. Good evening, I'm Lori Townsend. Also tonight, elders in Chignik vow to fight for their salmon fishery after years of dismal returns. How can they just let this happen without doing anything about it? I have grandchildren that thought this was their legacy. Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. The Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine is now authorized in the U.S. for anyone 12 years or older. Getting your child immunized with this free, safe, and effective vaccine is a great way to get them safely back to sports, get-togethers, and other fun summer activities. Learn more about COVID-19 vaccines and schedule appointments at covidvax.alaska.gov or call the State of Alaska COVID-19 Vaccine Helpline at 1-833-482-9546. This message sponsored by the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. The Biden administration will re-examine the land use plan for the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska with the likely effect of putting more areas off limits to Arctic drilling. The announcement came in a lawsuit challenging the Trump administration's plan, which called for opening most of the NPRA to possible oil development. That plan reversed an Obama administration decision that shielded about half of the petroleum reserve from drilling. Last week, Laura Daniel Davis, an assistant secretary with the Interior Department, directed the Bureau of Land Management to review the NPRA management plan for compliance with President Biden's climate goals. The NPRA sits to the west of Prudhoe Bay and is a bit larger than the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Both tracts of federal land have seen a similar back and forth on policy. Democratic administrations erect barriers to drilling. Republicans take them down and clear a path for development, followed by another Democratic administration blocking that path. Ian Manuel says the Trump area plan was a step backward. Manuel is a program director for the Sierra Club, one of the groups that filed a lawsuit over Trump's NPRA plan. I think what's different about this decision now is that the Biden administration cited climate change as the reason to block or to reexamine the drilling and leasing in the National Petroleum Reserve. And so we hope that changes the dynamic here. Manuel says the next president, no matter the party, should recognize the reality of climate change and the need to keep more petroleum in the ground to fight it. Alaska Oil and Gas Association President Kara Moriarty says the Trump plan for the area was thorough and it was finalized months ago. She says she understands Biden has other priorities. But those priorities shouldn't allow an administration to go back and and review a a legal document because what kind of certainty does that send? While the government's review of the NPRA is underway, the Bureau of Land Management won't offer oil and gas leases in the areas recently opened for possible development. Alaska state government may have trouble paying its bills over the next year due to a dispute over taking funds from the piggy bank the state has used to balance the budget in the past. And that could lead to the state spending from funds that most lawmakers want to protect for the future. Or it could go without paying some of its bills, but the legislature would have to agree to a change for it to be legal. Alexi Painter is the legislature's top nonpartisan budget expert. He says the state could run out of money if oil revenue comes in lower than forecast. 
there's no backstop fund now. So if we have a deficit, there's no funds there to fill it. In past years, the Constitutional Budget Reserve was that backstop, but spending from it requires the agreement of three-quarters of both the Senate and House of Representatives, and that hasn't happened this year. The Senate Finance Committee is considering a bill the House recently passed to fund permanent fund dividends and other items. If the Senate passes the bill without changes, it's projected to leave a relatively small amount at the end of the budget year compared to the size of the budget. And Painter says if the projection is wrong, there could be no money left. Having no margin of error and not having a backstop fund is concerning just because of that difficulty in the budget world of being accurate in that projection. Without drawing from the Constitutional Budget Reserve, there are only two other large accounts the state could draw from if it runs out of money, and most lawmakers have wanted to protect both of them. Bethel Democratic Senator Lyman Hoffman says the Senate Finance Committee could keep $54 million more in the general fund to pay for the budget. That's how much the House approved in oil and gas tax credits. Hoffman says the money could instead come from the Constitutional Budget Reserve, or CBR. I would think that the committee would uh, consider the option of funding the $54 million out of the CBR again. The state has run out of money in the general fund before, in 1987. The administration at the time stopped some money the legislature had budgeted from being spent. The legislature later retroactively approved the action. Hospitalizations for COVID-19 are at an all-time high in Alaska. Nearly a dozen more people were admitted to the state's overwhelmed hospitals yesterday, where one in five patients are sick with the virus. Today, there are nearly 200 people in the hospital with COVID-19. Most of those patients are unvaccinated. According to the state's data, almost all of South Central and Interior intensive care units are full or near capacity. Doctors in the state have repeatedly warned that the system is at its limit. Hospitalizations have roughly doubled since state hospital officials sounded the alarm about a month ago. The state reported more than 840 new cases of COVID-19 for Tuesday, among the highest single-day counts since the pandemic began. The state also reported that another five Alaskans with the virus have died. Just over 60 percent of Alaskans 12 and older have had their first dose of the vaccine, which is below the national average. Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, an historic clan house in Sitka is collapsing. We've lost one more of our ancient structures that embodies the history of the Singit people. That's ahead. Stay with us. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by Alaska Pipeline Service Company, celebrating more than 43 years of Alaska operations. The Nature Conservancy in Alaska is engaged in an exciting new effort, the Alaska Climate Opportunities Assessment. Join in on the virtual conversations featuring expert Alaskans and learn about innovative efforts to implement bipartisan climate solutions and mitigate the worst effects of a changing climate. Learn more and read the specially commissioned reports at nature.org slash akclimateopportunity. This message sponsored by the Nature Conservancy in Alaska.
Interior Secretary Deb Holland has postponed a trip to Alaska this month, citing the state's rising rates of COVID-19. Holland was due to visit in mid-September, particularly to meet leaders in King Cove. They want to build a road to nearby Cold Bay and its all-weather airport, but the road would go through the Eisenbeck National Wildlife Refuge, and President Obama's Interior Secretary blocked it. Holland has promised to meet with local leaders before committing to a position. Today, though, the department announced that it is postponing Holland's trip until later this year. The announcement said the decision was made in consultation with Alaska Native and local leaders. The Chignik River's salmon runs have sustained generations in small fishing communities along the Alaska Peninsula. But for the fourth year in a row, the runs were extremely low. People are struggling to earn a living fishing and to put up enough fish for the winter. For Alaska's Energy Desk, Izzy Ross has more from those who worry that they're losing a fishing tradition that connects their families to home. Jean Carlson drives through the narrow, winding streets of Chignik Bay, between quiet wooden houses. That used to be a restaurant there. And those across over there, that's a web loft over there, which is shut down now. There's another one of my cousin's houses. He's not living there anymore. The Aleut fishing community is nestled among green mountains overlooking turquoise water. The area has been home to Native people for a millennia. Chignik Bay was established as a fishing community in the late 1800s, and more people of Aleutic, Aleut, Russian, and Scandinavian descent moved to the area. Now, about 90 people live here. These are almost done. They're getting really close. We have gorgeous weather for doing this. It's kind of messy, but that's the slow goes. Up a steep ladder to the second floor of the smokehouse, strips of red salmon glow in the sun. It's mid-July, and people would normally be out fishing commercially or filling smokehouses with subsistence catch. But for four years now, the sockeye and chinook runs to Chignik have been extremely low. Carlson was born in Chignik Bay and has fished commercially since he was a kid in 1961. Now he lives in Washington state and usually returns for the summer. Driving through the quiet village, he says this may be his last season. If we have another prediction like this year, I don't think I can come back, you know. It's expensive to try to, because you know, when we come back, we bring food for the whole summer. We've got to feed our crews, which you can't even find anymore. Some people think climate change is causing the decline. Others point to fishermen in other areas catching Chignik-bound fish. But regardless of the cause, people are anxious that without the runs, the communities will die. The village of Chignik Lagoon is about an hour's boat ride along the bay's shoreline. About 70 people live here. And it's protected by that sand spit, which is a natural breakwater. George Anderson fishes commercially and for subsistence. He's also the president of the Chignik Intertribal Coalition, which was formed after the run collapsed in 2018. Earlier this summer, the run was so low that some people chose not to put out nets for subsistence fishing. They were worried about harming the fragile run. Uh, it's something that we took for granted in the past, that the fish were just always going to be there for, you know, smoking, salting, freezer, whatever. And to have that not be there for you is uh, just something we're never prepared for. Never imagined even not subsisting. Some scientists have connected fisheries failures in the Gulf of Alaska to marine heat waves. But state research biologists also say it could be because of habitat changes in the salmon's spawning grounds.
Since the Chignik run collapsed, much of the debate has also centered on another state-run fishery to the south, called Area M. Critics see it as an intercept fishery, where sockeye traveling through are harvested before they can reach fisheries closer to spawning grounds, like Chignik. Anderson says it feels like the Chignik villages are shouldering the burden of conservation. They haven't yet received the disaster relief money they were promised after the 2018 failure, either. Kevin Shaberg is a fin fish research coordinator for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. It's hard to understand that, you know, other, everybody else gets to go fishing, but you got to sit home next to the river and watch no fish go by. Um, and that's that's tough, and it's something that we've you know we've tried to handle in the past. In previous years, he says the department has limited fishing in nearby areas when Chignik was low. But Shaberg says the burden of conserving a run usually falls on the areas closest to where the fish should be returning to spawn. He says the department does plan to research the watershed to try to figure out if something in the freshwater environment is contributing to the run's decline. In the meantime, other organizations have tried to help. Last summer, a commercial processor donated thousands of Bristol Bay sockeye to the Chignicks. Lots of people said receiving that fish was amazing. But subsistence isn't just about food. It's a connection to place and family as people work together to harvest. Elder Vivian Brandle is 80 and has lived in the Chignik area all her life. Now she goes to Kodiak in the winter. She says it's difficult to comprehend what is happening. Subsistence fishing is a lifeline. I mean, we depend on that. That's something we've done all our life. And I mean, it. it's something we really depend on. Actually, not only fishing, but we used to be able to get caribou. We'd get caribou every year. You can't even do that anymore. Brandel says the lower sockeye runs have changed the future of the Chignik communities. That's five villages that depend on this fishery. And you look at it, you think, how can the state let this happen? How can they just let this happen without doing anything about it? I mean, it's. I have grandchildren that thought this was their legacy. Still, she says she's hopeful. She's inspired by Katie John, an advocate and defender of Alaska Native subsistence rights, who petitioned the state and federal government to allow for traditional fishing in her home. She fought for what she, what she believed in, and that's what I think we should do. We believe in this, and we should fight for it. And I really, I won't be able to anymore, but I just think the younger people really ought to. You know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's very emotional for people. You look... <laughs> I should be crying. <laughs> this is crazy, but it is very hard. Brandel thinks they should work together to find a way forward, too. For Alaska's Energy Desk in Chignik Lagoon, I'm Izzy Ross. One of only nine remaining clan houses in Sitka is on the verge of collapse. The historic property is deeply rooted in Sitka's clan traditions, and its passing is a significant milestone. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. The century-old frame house is one of a pair side-by-side on Catlian Street in a historic district of Sitka that was resettled by Hlingit following conflict with the Russians in the 19th century. The house itself was built later in the early 20th century and was steeped in tradition even then. So this house was called Hit, and some people translate that as the far out house, but it comes from a very ancient raven story about how raven pulled the salmon house to shore from the open ocean, and that's how 
the salmon began to swim upstream. Robbie Littlefield is chair of the Sitka Historic Preservation Commission and a Tlingit language scholar. So it is a coho or tlipnachedi house. And when the Yakutat people moved to Sitka in the 1800s, they brought their house with them in by name. And when they built this house, it also became the newest Dukinaw Hit. The ownership of Dukinaw Hit is caught in the gray area between cultures. In Western culture, ownership passes from parents to children, or in other words, it's familial. In Hlingat culture, clan identity and ownership are matrilineal and marriages are between members of different clans. So when a father dies and his property reverts to his children under Western laws, that property also moves under the care of a different clan, which can lead to problems. As complicated as this becomes, Littlefield says that it's important to reflect on what the loss of Dukinahit means. What it means to the community is that uh, we've lost one more of our ancient structures that embodies the history of the Singit people. And the only reason that we can even recite this history in the 21st century is because that house is standing. Dukinaw Hit is slumping into the embankment behind it and looks like it could further collapse and slide into the roadway. Sitka police plan to keep the street closed indefinitely until the city works out a stabilization plan with the owners, and that will be difficult on several levels. The house may not be saved, and Littlefield says that should be acknowledged. This house had a spirit, and it's passing away. It's, it's leaving our world now. Littlefield says that in the Hlingit worldview, Dukinahit will remain alive only as long as people remember it. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by Alaska Air Cargo, connecting 21 Alaska communities to and from the lower 48 with scheduled shipping services. More information at alaskacargo.com. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Eskimo Walrus Commission ask travelers along the shores of Bristol Bay and the Chukchi Sea Coast to help prevent human-caused disturbances of Pacific walrus haulouts. Unexpected sights, sounds, and smells can cause the animals to stampede and result in trampling deaths of walruses. Keep your distance. More about how to help at www.fws.gov Alaska or call 1-800-362-5148. This message sponsored by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The Anchorage School Board voted unanimously last night to commemorate the district's first black teacher and principal by adding her name to her community's elementary school. Ethildra Davis moved to Anchorage in 1959 from Los Angeles and was the first black teacher hired on contract with the Anchorage School District. She later became principal of Fairview Elementary in 1969, another first for a black educator. At the time, many Anchorage neighborhoods had restrictive covenants preventing black and Alaska Native people from buying homes. We had segregation right here in Anchorage people aren't really talking about. Andrea Antoine is Davis's daughter. She says when her mother moved to Anchorage, the Fairview neighborhood was one of the few places black families could buy property. She was able to come to what they call the last frontier, you know, the last frontier with dirt roads, because it was dirt roads in Fairview when we moved there, um, and, you know, become the first black teacher and principal. That's, that's saying something. 
Davis passed away in November from complications due to COVID-19. Shortly after, advocates in the Fairview neighborhood, along with the Anchorage NAACP, circulated a petition to name Fairview Elementary School after her to commemorate her legacy as a trailblazing educator. For Antoine, she also sees her mother's legacy in other black education leaders in Anchorage, like school board president Margot Bellamy. And so to see that manifest, that is her legacy. You know what I mean? Progress in the community that she loved. Antoine says she hopes the name change and her mother's story will inspire students to learn about other role models in their communities. Much like mitigation measures in the outside world, strategies for preventing the spread of COVID-19 in schools are ever-changing. KTOO's Bridget Dowd looked into what Juneau School District is doing to keep students and staff healthy. It's been just over three weeks since students returned to Juneau's classrooms, and so far, District Superintendent Bridget Weiss says their case numbers seem to be reflecting the rates of the city as a whole. Our most frequent cases are at elementary, uh, where kids can't be vaccinated yet. Uh, Our response is most of the time to quarantine a classroom. She says when someone tests positive for COVID-19, Juno Public Health determines when that person can return to school based on factors like their symptoms and when they took the test. When someone has been in close contact with an infected person, they get tested five days after exposure, and if the result is negative, they can return to school on day eight. Weiss says so far that response has proved effective, but isn't always easy because reports of positive cases or possible exposures come in at all hours. A couple of times I've been notified of an elementary case at about 7 in the morning, 7.15, 7.20. So we are sometimes calling parents right before school starts uh, to say, please don't send your kid or come pick up your kid. And uh, that's unfortunate, um, but it is what we have to do sometimes. Until recently, school officials were under the impression that they couldn't ask staff members if they'd been vaccinated, but that's no longer the case. We've gotten some clarity this week, and I'm super excited that we can request verification of vaccination status, that it is not protected by HIPAA. So that is going to be a huge tool for us. And and many, many of our staff tell us that they're vaccinated or not, right? It's just very few, but that don't want to do that. If for any reason a staff member doesn't answer, the district just assumes they're unvaccinated for any protocols built around vaccine status. It is simply operational information. What we want is a safe environment. So whether somebody is vaccinated or not, we don't hold any judgment on that. We just need to know so that we can respond accordingly. Weiss estimates about 70 to 80 percent of all school staff members are currently vaccinated against COVID-19. Optional weekly tests are also available to staff members. As for athletics and activities, participating high school students have been tested frequently for COVID-19. Starting this week, the district is also implementing that policy for middle schoolers. Weiss says they look at every opportunity for teams to travel individually and keep the trips as short as possible. We used to play football at 7 or 8 at night. Now we've been playing them at 3 in the afternoon because teams can come in in the morning, play, and then go home that night and not have any overnight. So again, limiting that exposure. Those teams are no longer eating out at restaurants. They bring food with them instead. And student-athletes who've been vaccinated are allowed to opt out of testing. 
However, Weiss says all policies are subject to change based on the most up-to-date information. If we started seeing cases pop up in our activities, then we, we might tighten it and just say there's no opt-out, everybody's testing. Back in school buildings, masks are still required for everyone. Proper hand washing has been taught and retaught to younger kids, and air purifiers have been installed. Most of our kids, most of our staff, when they're at school, it's the most mitigated environment that they participate in. And so far, that's paying off. At this point, Weiss doesn't see a scenario where the whole district would have to return to remote learning again. I just think we're far enough down the road. I could be wrong. Stranger things have happened in the last 15 months that we never would have predicted. But with everything that I know up to this point, I would be incredibly surprised if we ever had to take that step. In some cases, Weiss says the district has moved one grade level or one school to distance learning when cases emerged and plans to take that approach for the foreseeable future. In Juneau, I'm Bridget Dowd. Golden Valley Electric Association and a nonprofit that promotes electric vehicles in Alaska celebrated in late August the installation of a new electric vehicle charging station in Cantwell. As KUAC's Tim Ellis reports, it's the fastest EV charger in the state. It's located on property owned by Kirk Martakis, a local businessman and EV owner and true believer in the technology. Man, it's been just so wonderful uh, driving electric. We can't even think about going back to gas anymore. Martakis has operated an EV charging station at that site for about four years now, using energy collected from his solar panel. Hence the name of his facility, Driving on Sunshine. And I started with, you know, solar and wind power and running my home. But the old charger's technology was much less powerful and slower than the 50-kilowatt DC charger that's been operating for about a month now. Martekis says it would take about six hours for the old system to charge an EV battery, enough to get from there to Anchorage or Fairbanks, depending on which direction you're coming from. But the new fast charger cuts that time to about an hour. And Martekis has plans on how to keep customers occupied. As time goes on, there'll be a little coffee shop and a lodge here and uh, people will be stopping in and, uh, you know, having things to do while they charge. The fast charger was made available largely through the efforts of Chris Hall, an Anchorage engineer and EV owner and advocate. He and his wife, Sarah, run Recharge Alaska, an organization that's helping develop a network of charging stations throughout the state. Golden Valley Electric Association has partnered with Recharge Alaska to set up the fast charger in Cantwell, and it's supporting the effort with a $49,000 grant and other assistance. This is a unique charger and that it'll be the fastest one in Alaska. Golden Valley spokesperson Meadow Bailey says the utility is interested in supporting the fast charger because its members have expressed a lot of interest in EVs. And also because if EVs begin replacing fossil fuel powered vehicles, it might help clear the air in Fairbanks. We know we have issues with air quality, and electric vehicles are one of those solutions that we see. Bailey says Golden Valley will soon begin installing an EV charging station at its Fairbanks office that'll feature two units that will charge even faster than the one in Cantwell. And she says Golden Valley also supports development of another charging station in Delta Junction to cover the eastern portion of its service area. So then we would have one on the Cantwell side, we'd have one in the Fairbanks area. 
um, you know, Delta would be the other. The Alaska Energy Authority also plans to develop more charging stations around Alaska. Martakis says Recharge Alaska is working with the AEA in an effort to set up new stations in Nenana, Healy, and Talkeetna. In Delta Junction, I'm Tim Ellis. And that's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. If you missed any of tonight's stories, we're online at alaskapublic.org and wherever you get your podcasts. We had reports tonight from Liz Ruskin and Wesley Early in Anchorage, Andrew Kitchenman, Claire Strempel, and Bridget Dowd in Juneau, Tim Ellis in Delta Junction, Izzy Ross in Chignik Lagoon, and Robert Woolsey in Sitka. If you want to send us a news tip, question, or a comment, email us, news at alaskapublic.org. Our audio engineer is Tobin Shelby. Annie Fight is our editor and producer. And I'm Lori Townsend. Good night. Alaska News Nightly was made possible by... Scan Home Furniture, the Alaska dealer for the X-Chair, providing ergonomic adjustments for your body. Now at Scan Home in the Dover Center in Midtown Anchorage. Planning today for a gift down the road builds a legacy of support for the media you treasure. Thank you for considering this public radio station in your estate planning. You can talk to your financial advisor or contact your public radio station to learn more. Thank you. This is Statewide News on Alaska Public Media.